Mr. Rosenzweig. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, I'm Jeff Rosenzweig and I represent the Sanford Law Firm and Josh Sanford. And I'd like to express my appreciation to Your Honors for permitting this video because of my temporary physical disability. With regard to this case, it's painfully obvious that the Sanford Law Firm got on the wrong side of the distinguished district judge in this case on the issue of attorney's fees and the well-spun litigation. And it appears that this is not the first time. However, the district court made a number of substantive and procedural mistakes in its desire to penalize the Sanford Firm and Josh Sanford. The most salient one is the issue of notice. We'd like the court to reverse and dismiss, but at the very least, we would be asking this court to reverse and remand for hearing with proper notice so that all of the issues, including questions of delay, are properly joined. This case had made two trips to this court, the Eighth Circuit, on the issue of attorney's fees, but only a few minutes after this court affirmed the second appeal after having reversed the first time, the district court was given a show cause order for Rule 11 in contempt. This was an obviously pre-prepared document that spent a lot of time talking about other matters that the Sanford Firm had been involved in. But we couldn't tell from the document exactly what specific pleadings had increased the cost of litigation and what weren't warranted by existing law. And of course, although essentially mooted now, what was the contempt? And various cases, including the Coltrane case from the Second Circuit, make clear that we're entitled to know the specifics. Thus, we filed a- Is there any similar precedent from the Eighth Circuit requiring that specificity of notice? Your Honor, I didn't cite one, but the rule requires proper notice and requires designation of what the pleadings or advocacy was, and we just didn't know. Therefore, we filed a motion for bill of particulars explaining what the problem was, what we couldn't tell, and what we felt we were entitled to know, and that there were the issues of improper delay, possibly improper delay. And we cited cases like Kunstler and the Cooter Jail v. Hartmark's case for that proposition. We also pointed out in the initial paragraph we didn't know what the possible penalty was. The district court summarily- Counsel, let me interrupt you because I was looking for an answer to the Chief Judge's question. What about the Byrd case? You have it prominently in your brief. The other side does, too. What about the Byrd case? The Byrd case? Yeah, it's the 2003 case of this court. You quote it. If you're talking about the Byrd case, it was on the question of the disciplinary sanctions, if that's the one we're talking about. Yes, go ahead and proceed. Okay. But this was a- that wasn't specifically the point that I was talking about. But the district court summarily brushed this away with no explanation, whatever, just a text entry denied. So we showed up at the hearing 
not knowing precise with not knowing precisely what what specific documents or statements were at issue. We made that clear on the front end and offered to elucidate. And the judge said, no, you made the record. And that's the issue is we submit is clearly preserved on the question of notice. And of course, then we get into the question of contempt. And since there wasn't a contempt, I suppose that's mooted, although we didn't know it until the time we we actually got in there. And then we have the another salient issue of on notice, which is that we find out only when he's assessing penalty that Josh Sanford is he's considered Josh Sanford personally a respondent. That was that was not clear at all in the in the show cause order where it talks about the the Sanford law firm should do should, you know, should attend. And if Josh Sanford is the managing partner, but it was the Sanford law firm. And the only the only pronoun used was it not he, him or it and he or it and him or anything like that. Just it. And so if we were we were shocked to find out that he was that he was personally in the dock. And of course, we we had no reasonable notice of that. And I believe the amicus does concede that it could have been that it that it could have been more specific. I certainly don't think that it it deserved the adjective of flyspecking or whatever that that was was given. OK, the amicus seems to think that we didn't challenge the district court substantive findings on appeal, but we did. And the brief points out with regard to all the specific one through seven or one through eight that were on that, that he listed that the district court listed in the order. We pointed out, number one, that this wasn't in the show. These specifics weren't in the show cause for one. And secondly, secondly, we pointed out what arguments we could have made before the court in in response to that. The some of these, for instance, involved the negotiation process and not adequacy before the court. Then we have things that were rule 11 for appearing for disagreement. We have some that just go talking about other cases that Sanford was involved in. Then there's the question of asserting whether you won on appeal or not, when, in fact, in the first attorney's fee trip up to this court, it was reversed. Said the judge did not do it correctly. Now, he didn't get attorney's fees out of it, but in fact, it was reversed. And then, of course, Mr. Rosenzweig, I have a question for you. We have this Jones Day law firm case. Security National Bank is the first name of the name of the first party. And it talks about notice of sanctions. And Judge Murphy's opinion says, 
quotes uh, Greg Joseph, a leading authority on sanctions, pointing out that notice of the type and severity of sanction being considered may lead to substantially different uh, responses by the targeted lawyer. Uh, and particularized notice may be of critical importance when uh, uh, a lawyer's a law firm's reputation is at stake and so forth. Um, could you explain from your point of view how notice of the potential sanction of the suspension would have affected the response? Well, um, you know, we, well, number one, we probably, uh, under the circumstances, I, I'd say we probably would have uh, put Mr. Sanford on the, on the, uh, uh, put him on the stand. But the problem is we just did, we didn't have, uh, but it's also infected by the fact we didn't have notice, uh, we submit we didn't have proper notice of what the specific alleged violations were. Uh, and with which we submit uh, tainted everything. So we, we came in there uh, not knowing. And clearly, if we had had notice of the sanctions, uh, what the potential sanctions are, yes, we pro I, I, he, Mr. Sanford probably would have wanted to or uh, insisted on, uh, on testifying. Okay, Maybe. then I have a second question for you. Do you have any authority or any further enlightenment you can provide on the relationship between the local rules disciplinary process and the authority of an individual judge to impose a non-monetary sanction under Rule 11 that might be the same as a sanction that could come out of the local disciplinary process? Uh, I'm, it's, I'm, I, I think I understand your uh, your question, and the the uh, the if your our position is is if you're going to have uh, rules that involve a uh, a suspension of some sort, which this clearly does, that's what the federal uh, disciplinary rules are about. Now we understand that in the Bird case, uh, the uh, court went the uh, appears to have gone the other way over Judge Bai's uh, uh, over Judge Bai's dissent, and we. Uh, well, the Bird case said there was no prejudice. They said that, yes. they seemed to say the court should have referred it to the local mm -hmm. process, but there was mm -hmm. no prejudice because the attorney was only arguing legal conclusions. Uh, but what I'm trying to understand is whether that's whether the law requires an individual judge to refer any suspension matter to the local process or whether an individual judge retains authority under Rule 11 independently to impose that sanction. Do you have a view on that or anything you uh, can well, share I, to I, help I, us with my, that? My, uh, if, if you're going to have rules, uh, our position is if you're going to have rules, uh, that, that particularly have shalls and not mays, but have shalls, uh, that's there to, uh, for the due process rights of the particular, of the particular litigant, uh, specifically, and with suspension specifically so, uh, you don't have a situation where a personality conflict or something like that causes a single judge 
to promulgate some sort of suspension because of the severity of the suspension. I think that's responsive to your question. But you did not raise that in the district court, right? We did not say that at the time. And so the question is whether that's plain error or not, of course. And I think I'm into my time for rebuttal, so if the court doesn't have any more questions, I will yield the floor. Thank you, Mr. Rosenzweig. Mr. Magnuson? Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Landon Magnuson, court-appointed amicus on this matter, speaking in defense of Judge Wilson's order for sanctions. Mr. Sanford's appeal attempts to reverse his order based on three arguments, as this court is well aware. And the majority of Mr. Rosenzweig's previous argument here was the first element, which was the show cause order failed to adequately provide notice of the issues he faced on appeal. The second issue that he brings up in his briefing is that there was a failure of timeliness, that it didn't adequately or promptly provide the sanction as he should have, and as a result, it would be invalid. And then the third, as Judge Colleton had brought up, and there was some discussion near the end, was whether the sanctions that were imposed violated or exceeded the court's Rule 11 authority. Truthfully, it's amicus's opinion in this matter that under each of these circumstances that there isn't enough to merit reversal. So we could start first off with just the specific basis for sanctions. According to Mr. Sanford, the entire issue of sanctions is premised on an error because his motion for a bill of particulars was denied, which asked for more specific information. And on appeal, Mr. Sanford specifically states that essentially the court should have cited chapter and verse the definite pleadings that would have been offensive in this situation. And he cites, as he had mentioned just a moment ago, Mr. Rosenzweig did, the Coltrane International case. For two reasons specifically, that case would be an opposite in this situation, not to mention the fact that there is controlling Eighth Circuit precedent on what is required as far as notice is concerned. So first of all, Coltrane International, this court will observe, is from the Second Circuit. And while the Second Circuit is filled with brilliant and intelligent judges who would have very persuasive authority for this court, it doesn't govern this court. And second and most importantly, though, about the Coltrane decision, though, is this court should observe that in that situation, the court was going back and reversing based on the findings of fact that occurred after the hearing. So this wasn't an issue of whether the attorney in advance and the show cause order was provided adequate notice in advance of possible sanctions, but whether the court had provided adequate findings that would justify the sanctions that were imposed afterward. So a very different situation than what Mr. Sanford is arguing here today. And I would direct the court's attention to the Clark case, Clark v. UPS. It's 460 Federal 3rd, 1004 that's cited in my brief. And in that case, the court does specifically provide information about what is required in advance of a sanctions hearing and in the show cause order. To quote the court, this court said, Rule 11 provides a specific procedure to be followed when sanctions are considered. A district court may impose Rule 11 sanctions on its own initiative. It must first enter an order describing the specific conduct that appears to violate Rule 11b and direct the attorney to show cause why he has not violated the rule. 
In this situation, what, where, yes. what's the specific notice in this case that would comply with with Clark or, or comport with Clark's requirement for specific notice? Absolutely, Your Honor. So if we were to just look at the record, and this is the wild convenience of doing this from your own desk, we could pull up the uh, the direct show cause order, which is um, in the in the record. I believe it's it's uh, pages APP three fifty nine all the way to 362 and here we specifically have a lot of discussion about what had occurred directly to settlement negotiations starting on page 359 going into 360 talking about the billing but if 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 some of the practices weren't specific enough judge wilson does provide a very brief summary right at the very end he says he wants sanford law firm and mr sanford to specifically what, mr magazine what piece are you on uh, this, is, this is page 362, Your Honor. Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. So at the very end, on, on the conclusion, he's directed to show cause, and then skipping to the last the last sentence, more specifically why rules 11B1 and B2, which relate to needlessly increasing the cost of litigation and certifying that legal contentions are warranted by existing law. So in this situation, Mr. Stanford was provided numerous examples in the show cause order, and then specifically the rules under which, or the subsections under which, on the rule, that they were going to be subject to possible sanctions. And at least according to Clark, and the rules that this court has set forth in the past, the specificity is, is sufficient here. There's not the same chapter and verse requirement that cold trade requires in the Second Circuit of findings after the fact um, in a show cause order that is presented in, in advance. Is there any precedent in the in this circuit regarding the specificity of notice of the potential sanctions uh, cold trade and, and the third circuit's case uh, seem to place a significant amount of emphasis on uh, counsel being made aware of the exposure or the uh, jeopardy uh, if you will I think that's the term mr. Rosenzweig used uh, that that counsel faces uh, where do we go to, to to look for what level is 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 required for or, or that that in particular the judge in this case would have been aware of as applicable precedent and authority that would have required him to do more than what was done yes your honor i think admittedly that this is a more difficult question um the the major case law to look at and the primary case here is the jones day case that was that was mentioned earlier um, in Jones Day, that was a very unique circumstance, and it does cite situations in which the um, possible jeopardy or the intended jeopardy should be or must be disclosed. But it's not in every situation. So again, to cite the case, and this is starting on page 944. So the citation is 800 Federal 3rd 936. Starting around page 944, uh, where it talks about additional process that would be required or could be required when issuing the show cause order prior to imposing sanctions. According to this court, it said that this additional process, uh, process or specific information regarding possible sanctions, quote, may be due depending on the type and severity of the sanction ultimately imposed. In other words, this necessarily implies that there are lots of situations where you don't need to specifically state what must or must not be provided. Then the court provides additional instruction. Shortly thereafter, he says, here, in this case was specific to it, 
when imposing the most severe sanctions, a district court should provide clear notice as to the form of the sanction. Now, this is where the hard part comes in, because the most severe sanctions hasn't been incredibly explored by this court. And so it would, in some ways, be new territory for it to explore. Well, what was the sanction in that case? Yes, Your Honor. In that case, the issue was concerning an attorney who, according to the judge, had... No, I'm just asking, what was the sanction? Right. And then my second question is, wasn't the sanction there less severe than the sanction here? Go ahead. Well, among other things, Your Honor, one of the sanctions that the court did impose was that the lawyer in question had to create an instructional video demonstrating, as continuing education, what she had done was the wrong thing to do in depositions. But there was no suspension of practice, as I recall. I don't recall necessarily either, Your Honor. But I would look at that case and its wording specifically to provide two situations where this clear notice is required. Number one is under circumstances where there are harsh sanctions. And this is through additional research based in this and its progeny. Harsh sanctions tend to be, at least as those that were defined in previous cases, when the court would simply strike the pleadings of a party. That would certainly be harsh, and I think every court would recognize that. The second one that was specifically defined or identified were unusual sanctions. And this one would be particularly when such a humiliating task was provided. And that was one that, or the wording that this court used. I think we're in a strange situation because we're in a different medium. Don't we have something similar to that, the scarlet letter, so to speak, of requiring counsel to notify other courts of the imposition of the sanction? Yes and no, Your Honor. Yes, in that certainly he does have to, or under the order, would need to notify other courts. But I believe that that fits more under the means or the purpose of sanctions, which is to deter attorney behavior, instead of necessarily to punish an attorney for a situation. In addition, this is quite different than the Jones Day case where this attorney was humiliated in front of all of her colleagues, whereas this is only in situations before certain courts with certain actions. But notwithstanding all of that, this issue was certainly not preserved for appeal. The only things that were provided in advance of everything were the motion for a bill of particulars and the transcript. And that is where the entire preservation of this case was provided. Well, didn't he ask there for notice of the sanction, of the potential sanction? So, Your Honor, this court obviously also knows that in order to preserve appeal, it requires specificity. It requires direction. General statements aren't sufficient to preserve an appeal. In the first page, and I would look again specifically to the record, if the court wants to look with me, to page 363. And this is cited in his reply where he says, and this is where he says or states that he did preserve the issue. It's near the last two sentences. He writes, SLF respectfully submits that the order is inadequate to advise SLF what is alleged to have done and what jeopardy it faces under the order. So that is it, what jeopardy it faces under the order. That wouldn't be very specific. However, it would look as though when proceeding through the rest of his motion for a bill of particulars that he does provide specificity. You'll note the court should notice it on page 364 when talking about civil contempt. 
365 as he continues to do so. 366 as he speaks about uh, civil contempt, so both in the contempt uh, context of criminal and civil. But the moment we move toward Rule 11 sanctions on 367, any issue as far as the, the type of sanction and the necessity that it be provided is omitted. And so if arguably the specificity requirement for preserving an issue on appeal was only provided in the context of contempt, which in this situation wasn't considered ultimately by the court obviating the need to look into there. So Amicus firmly believes that in this situation, this, this argument would only be available for plain error review. And because the court hasn't in the past clearly provided a situation where this, this would be either one of the harsh sanction or unusual sanctions under its previous precedent, that it's hard to claim that this is a clear or plain error by the district court. Mr. Magnuson, were you able to find anything in your research regarding the relationship between authority under Rule 11 versus under the local disciplinary rules for suspensions? No, Your Honor, but I believe that this court could and should be able to make some distinctions based on the difference between what Rule 11 would be and what sanction or and, and what discipline is. And I think the cases that have been provided to the court also show this. In Ray Bird, just a moment ago, and Judge Bai's, um, Judge Bai's uh, dissenting opinion there talked about how this or how the court should look to the local rules. But noticeably in In Ray Bird, there were both sanctions that were imposed first, where the attorney in that case was required to disgorge all of his own fees and then pay all the fees of the other party. And then after that had occurred, he was referred to discipline. And that that case in Ray Bird was specifically only regarding the disciplinary situation. This court and the law really shows that discipline and sanctions are different animals. They're created and used for different purposes. The case law from this court but, says- but the, but the situation we have here is where the sanction is the equivalent of a disciplinary sanction, right? Or it is at least a sanction that could be imposed under the disciplinary process, i.e. suspension from practice. And yes, so- and well, is there any re, is there any concern with uh, using Rule Eleven to impose a sanction that comes under the disciplinary process? Go ahead. Uh, yes and no, Your Honor. Uh, I would argue at the same time, though, that the way that this was managed, because well, again, to go and think about how sanctions versus discipline occur, sanctions are meant to deter attorney behavior to stop an action that is wrongful one way or the other. Discipline, in many cases over and over again, are to protect the public. So in this situation, if ultimately this was a disciplinary action, then does it truly protect the public to keep the Sanford Law Firm and Mr. Sanford only from practicing, from not practicing FLS cases before the Eastern District of Arkansas, when he could file any other case in any other matter before that court? Whereas if Mr. Sanford's offensive behavior over and over again was abusing the FLSA process and overcharging parties and attorney fees, and as Judge Wilson observed, simply imposing monetary sanctions on him would not matter when he'd collected on his next case, then the only way ultimately that court found that it could deter his behavior was to just simply say he couldn't do it anymore. 
different animals, Your Honor. And, and frankly, I, I recognize the issue um, and my time is up, but I would just argue that as different animals and different purposes, that a Rule 11 or a court under Rule 11 should have the ability and the freedom to exercise the discretion it needs to deter the offensive behavior. Whereas ultimately, if the matter looked as if the court, the public needed to be protected, then Judge Wilson very well could have referred this issue also to discipline, which, as far as we've seen, hasn't occurred. Thank you, Mr. Magnuson. Mr. Rosenzweig, your rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Your Honor, with regard to the, uh, the Clark case uh, that Mr. Uh, Magnuson talks about, uh, where they held there was sufficient notice, uh, the, uh, the court said, the, the appellate court said, the court entered an order to show cause in accordance with Rule 11. The order incorporated by reference the orders granting summary judgment, which detailed the court's objections to document 373. There is no dispute the court thereby notified him of six specific paragraphs in the pleading. We don't have anything of that sort uh, here. We just have you violated rule, you know, B1 and B2, and uh, without uh, without those uh, without those specifics, uh, Your Honor. The uh, the uh, we asked at the very beginning of the motion for uh, for bill of particulars. We said we don't know what jeopardy uh, we're jeopardy we're in. We submit that is sufficient to. Uh, uh, to to uh, put the you know, put the court on notice. Yeah, we might have it might have been able to uh, need to repeat that elsewhere in in the uh, uh, in the document, and it probably would have been nice. I was, uh, but I, I thought that this was uh, uh, adequate uh, in a way to uh, you know to uh, uh, you know preserve uh, preserve the issue. We came in to. Uh, court uh, on the hearing and renewed it, and uh, we were brushed away. Uh, we were just brushed away both times, and uh, uh, so I, I don't know what more uh, we uh, we really could have done other than just be uh, you know repetitive uh, over and over again. And as you know, as was obvious in the thing, you know, he was also talking about contempt and. Are we, are we looking at criminal contempt? Are we looking at jail, for instance, either uh, criminal or, or, or purging? And we had no idea. It was only when we got into the hearing that we found out he was using contempt as more of a descriptor than as a, uh, as a legal process. Uh, and uh, and we, we submit that, uh, that this... Uh, that we asked for, and of course, again, we have the uh, we submit fairly flagrant situation of of uh, finding out only at the uh, pronouncement of judgment that Mr. Sanford was personally a party when there was nothing in there, uh, nothing in there uh, beforehand. That clearly is uh, a failure of notice. Uh, there's no problem with just sending it back in front of a different judge, hopefully, uh, and we and we litigate these uh, litigate these issues um, and let uh, let a judge uh, let a judge decide when we have proper notice what's the uh, whether we're uh, whether Rule 11 has been violated and if so in what 
in what way. And it's only then uh, that that uh, comments by other uh, district and appellate judges about Mr. Sanford would uh, would come into uh, uh, would would come into play. Um, this uh, I the problem of, of sustaining a, uh, a finding here of uh, when we when we had no notice um, would set, we would uh, submit would set a very unfortunate prejudice when someone can find out only at the end of the hearing that he's personally a party when there was nothing not even a pronoun to uh, to tell uh, to tell us that he that mr. Sanford was uh, was personally a uh, was personally a party, um, and yes, we we uh, looking back. Obviously, we sh- we should have talked about the federal rules of uh, um, disciplinary you know, of disciplinary enforcement. We submit uh, we submit that that uh, that does uh, that does fit plain error, particularly under the circumstances of this case where we had a would submit a somewhat tense hearing, and and we you know we were uh, you know we. Uh, uh, and we had just been stunned uh, by the fact that Mr. Sanford was 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 now personally a party. Uh, and Rose, you, you, you've exhausted your time. Okay, okay I, I, I've said everything I need to say. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, uh, and thank you also, Mr. Magnuson. We appreciate both counsel's participation and argument before the court, uh, providing helpful information to us as we evaluate the complete uh, the, the uh, briefing. Uh, we'll continue to study the case and render decision in due course. Thank you. Thank you. Council may be excused. Thank you. Madam Clerk, I believe that concludes our scheduled hearings for today in this special session. Is that correct? Yes, it does, Your Honor. That being the case, the court will be in recess until further call. Uh, gentlemen, I will send you an invite for uh, a conference to begin at uh, 11.45. Thank you.